An update to ASEAN's joint military drills, digital ministries from the region develop guardrails for artificial intelligence, and key elections on the horizon in Singapore and Malaysia. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Karen Lee, and today is June 29th, 2023. On today's show... Right now, we are only talking about the three names as a presidential candidates. But now it seems that potential vice presidential candidates will also, I think, help or maybe discourage supporters in their supports uh, to these three candidates. So they are very careful in choosing their running mates. That was Philips Vermonte from the Indonesian International Islamic University, speaking about the frontrunners in Indonesia's upcoming presidential elections. If you want to hear more about those names and their policy platforms, stay tuned. First, though, the headlines. Today to help me read the headlines, it is my great pleasure to welcome the Southeast Asia program's newest research associate, Jafet Kitson, to the studio. Jafet is a former intern with our program and most recently worked with CSIS's Shoal Chair in International Business. We're so excited to have you back on the team. Hi, Karen. Thank you for having me on. I haven't done this in a while, so please go easy on me. Ooh, tough luck. We've got lots of ground to cover today, so we'll have to be trial by fire. You ready? (sighs) I spent all night cramming Southeast Asia headlines while making dinner, so let's do it. Okay, let's start where we left off last time with ASEAN's joint military drills. Less than two weeks after member countries announced the exercises in the North Natuna Sea, Indonesia's military stated that the drills will now be held in the South Natuna Sea, avoiding an area where several countries, including China, have overlapping territorial claims. Jafet, what do you make of this change? Well, our podcast made the argument during the last episode that the joint drills could be a symbolic effort to demonstrate ASEAN's relevance in its territorial waters. But now it seems the original location could have deterred some countries from participating. Although the exercises are being touted as the first ever for ASEAN, Cambodia has yet to confirm its attendance, saying it needs to form a working group to study the proposal before getting approval from their defense ministry. The exercise, aptly named Solidarity, will be held from September 18th through 25th this year in and around Batam Island at the mouth of the Malacca Strait. Great. Now that we've gotten that correction out of the way, let's look at another ASEAN-related topic. I saw that the bloc has recently made moves towards developing laws governing AI. So I've heard. Recently, many countries in ASEAN have started to drop governance and ethics guidelines for artificial intelligence, especially as a result of the rise in generative AI such as ChatGPT in recent years. This comes after other institutions around the world, most notably the EU, have released their own regulations on AI. Right. So this development is a continuation of an ongoing conversation that started earlier this February at the ASEAN Digital Ministers meeting, when officials agreed on the need to develop a regional AI guide. According to internal sources, a draft of these regulations is set to be completed either by the end of this year or early next year. Singapore, who is chairing the ASEAN Digital Ministers meeting in 2024, seems to be spearheading these efforts. A spokesman from the Ministry of Communications and Information recently stated that the guide will, quote, serve as a practical and implementable step to support the trusted deployment of responsible and innovative AI technologies in ASEAN, end quote. This largely matches the language of the meeting in February, where ministers welcomed the technology for use towards furthering the digital transformation across the region while also ensuring that an innovative, responsible, and secure ecosystem stays intact. It doesn't surprise me that Singapore is the country leading the charge, as they've previously used AI for pathology, medicine delivery, and consumer-focused applications in the healthcare field. Speaking of the Lion City, did you hear about the upcoming presidential race? Yes, but to keep up pretenses for the script, I'll pretend I didn't, so you can tell me who's running. 
you're getting the hang of hosting already. So President Halima Yaakob announced in late May that she will not be seeking re-election, which means Singapore must hold presidential elections by the time her six-year term ends on September 13th. The Constitution has strict requirements for prospective candidates and different ones for public servants and private sector officials. One name to watch out for is Senior Minister Tharman Shanmugaratnam, who already has quite the resume. Indeed, Mr. Tharman is a widely respected veteran lawmaker who has previously served as Deputy Prime Minister, Finance Minister, and Education Minister. Since the presidency is a nonpartisan position, he has resigned from the ruling People's Action Party to run, as well as from his position as Chairman of Singapore's Central Bank. What are some other notable details about this election, Karen? Well, the last contested presidential election in Singapore was more than a decade ago in 2011. In 2017, only members of the Malay community were allowed to run, and Madam Halima was uncontested, becoming the first female president of the city-state. Mr. Tharman is clearly extremely qualified and has a strong economic track record, and an overwhelming majority of Singaporeans actually preferred him to succeed Lee Hsien Loong as prime minister in 2016. He'll be going up against businessman George Goh, and potentially even Prime Minister Lee's estranged brother, Lee Hsien Yang. But Jaffet, why don't you give us a rundown on what's happening across the causeway in Malaysia? Absolutely. Six out of 13 states in Malaysia are planning on holding state assembly elections in July and August this year. It's being seen as the first big test of stability for Prime Minister Anwar's relatively new coalition government. As a reminder for our listeners, Malaysia's general elections last fall resulted in the country's first ever hung parliament after Anwar's Pakatan Harapan alliance fell short of securing a majority. Yeah, it's a bit of a fragile situation. A big criticism that the coalition government has been fielding is that it lacks support from the Malay majority. Pakatan Harapan currently controls three of six assemblies, Penang, Selangor, and Negeri Sembilan, while the opposition Perikatan Nasional controls Kelantan, Terengganu, and Kedah. If the unity government gives a poor showing, it could embolden the opposition's divisive religious and ethnic rhetoric. I'm assuming the usual bread and butter issues will be on the table? Yep, that's right. Voters will certainly care about the economy, inflation, and the rising cost of living. It also seems that UMNO, the former ruling party that formed an unlikely alliance with Pakatan Harapan, has been calling for a royal pardon for former Prime Minister Najib Razak. What do you think that means for the election? More uncertainty. Anwar has to appeal to the ethnic Malay majority, but he's also pushed for reform and clean governance during his entire political career, so it puts him in an awkward position. A big reason behind UMNO's underperformance in November was due to the 1MDB scandal, which Najib is currently in prison for. So one wrong move from the unity government could tarnish the coalition's and Anwar's reputation in the public eye. A tense situation indeed. I know our adjunct fellow Sophie Lemire will be following the elections closely, so we'll be sure to update you on the results. And those are the headlines. Thanks for joining me, Jaffet. That wasn't so bad, right? Not at all. Up next, Greg and Alina's interview with Phillips Vermonte on Indonesia's presidential race. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I am your host, Gregory Poling, with the Center for Strategic and International Studies, joined as ever by my much smarter co-host, Alina Noor of the Carnegie Endowment. Hi, Alina. Don't know about that, but hi. <laughs> and our special guest and longtime friend today is Phillips Vermonte. Hi, Phillips. Hi, how are you? Very well. So Phillips is currently the Dean of Faculty of Social Sciences at UIII, which is the International Islamic uh, University of Indonesia. He's a senior fellow with the other CSIS, the Center with an RE of uh, Strategic and International Studies based in Jakarta, and formerly was that CSIS's executive director. We wanted to bring Phillips on today to give us an update on the state of play in the Indonesian presidential race, which has not I guess, formally started because candidates don't register until October, but it's really been underway for a while now. And, you know, based on the latest 
polls that I've seen, we've still got a pretty jumbled field. There's three main contenders, current defense minister and multi-time former presidential and vice presidential contender Prabowo Subianto seems to have a narrow lead these days, although I welcome Phillips telling me that I'm wrong or that that's fleeting. And then we have Ganjar Pranowo, who's the governor of central Java. He's been endorsed by PDIP, the party of, of current president Jokowi. He was for months the front runner and now seems to have fallen back a half step. And then finally, you have what I think people would consider the only real opposition candidate, uh, Anis Baswedan, the former Jakarta governor, former minister of education and culture, who is is kind of clearly running in overt opposition to Jokowi policies, whereas Ganjar and Prabowo both seem to be seeking to claim his mantle as some kind of, of successor. So I guess, Phillips, if, if I can start off, do you think that that's a fair characterization of kind of what, what lane each of those three men is trying to run in? Yeah, that's true. And uh, I think uh, these three names have been the the front runners, if you will, based on various polls since last year. So there are some other names, but uh, they are trailing behind from these three names. And then uh, you are also correct to say that it seems that now uh, Prabowo maintains some kind of uh, age compared to uh, Ganjar a few months ago, uh, also uh, compared to Anis Baswedan. But between uh, Prabowo and Ganjar, it's a very slight difference. And, uh, and in some polls, it's uh, within the margin of error. So we don't really know whether uh, Prabowo is really ahead of Ganjar, but it's been a tight race so far because uh, it's not official yet. They have to wait until the registration for presidential tickets will start only in October 19th until uh, November 25th. So there's still some other questions uh, uh, pop up because right now we are only talking about the three names as a presidential candidates. But now it seems that potential vice presidential candidates will also, I think, help or maybe discourage support supporters in their supports uh, to these three candidates. So they are very careful in choosing their running mates still, I think. So, Phyllis, can you explain for the uninitiated among us, myself included, yeah. what is the appeal of each of these candidates that has propelled them to be the top frontrunners? I mean, Prabowo has had a checkered past, and yet he's still up there. Uh, but maybe yeah. you can touch on, on each of them. Yeah, for Prabowo, he's been trying. I think this is going to be his fourth time, if I'm not uh, mistaken in counting. And uh, what is, I think, different about this right now for Prabowo is that he's running unusually on the platform of being a continuation program of the incumbent, right? Although we don't have incumbent in 2024, but uh, Prabowo uh, runs slightly different strategy right now. He's been attached to President Jokowi. He's now Minister of Defense. Uh, so he's uh, very supportive to uh, President Jokowi. And also uh, President Jokowi seems to groom him as well. Uh, in the previous elections, Prabowo seems to take the other route, right? As uh, an opposition, actors for change and so on. But now I think uh, he, he he changed his strategy. And then uh, because the approval rating for President Jokowi is very, very high. You know, in some polls, it's about 75%. Uh, other world's leader, world leaders would be salivating to see that kind of high level of support, right? So whoever endorsed 
by President Jokowi would certainly benefit because he or she will be perceived as the continuation of President Jokowi, who has been liked by Indonesians you know, as presidents. So that's uh, Prabowo Subianto. Now, Pak Ganjar also uh, endorsed by President Jokowi in some ways and in many ways as well. Uh, but uh, I think now there has been some kind of a, what is it, a slight different uh, because uh, Pak Ganjar is member of PDIP. He's a PDIP politician for a long time. He was member of parliament representing PDIP. Pak Jokowi never was never a, a member of parliament representing PDIP. So Pak Prabowo is, uh, Pak, Pak Ganjar is kind of a, a home ground cadre of PDIP. So his loyalty, I think, if I may say, is kind of a divided towards uh, PDIP or Bumegawati uh, as the party chairwoman and to President uh, Jokowi. But for tickets, presidential tickets, according to our constitution, it has to be coming from political parties, right? So it seems to me that there is this competition uh, <laughs> between President Jokowi and PDIP on the who actually the endorsers of uh, Pak Ganjar Pranowo. And I think it will take some time for Pak Ganjar to earn, you know, his, the, what is it, the the public view about him being himself as a presidential candidate, not being the subordinates of uh, either Pak Jokowi or Pak uh, Ibu Megawati of uh, the chairwoman of uh, PDIP. But he is, uh, he's been the most popular candidate, uh, you know, until maybe a few weeks ago. And uh, he's been front runner and he's been groom. He's been the, the governor of Central Java. So he has a very strong support. And if I may add, this is uh, uh, the fact that the voters in Indonesia mostly live in Java. And Central Java is the most populous <laughs> uh, population, has the most populous population in, in Indonesia. So Central Java is really a turf. And then I think uh, no doubt that he would win by landslide in Central Java. And it's already a huge benefit for Pak Ganjar. So he, he, he is still the, one of the strongest, right? And very competitive against Pak Prabowo on that matter. And now, Anis uh, Baswedan, you are right, Greg, when you're saying that he's uh, running on the platform as opposition in 2024. He's supported by two opposition parties, a Democrat uh, led by SBY, and then also the PKS, the, the Islamic Party. So... He's been running off uh, on on that platform, trying to distance himself and differentiate himself from the policies of President Jokowi, trying to portray himself as someone who would bring alternative to this uh, uh, to the policies of President Jokowi. So, all in all, you are correct in uh, portraying these three uh, characteristics of the uh, candidates. So let's pick these apart a little bit. I want to start with Ganjar. You, you mentioned the tension he has between kind of his two patrons, uh, President Jokowi, who, I mean, one presumes that kind of the formal endorsement by President Jokowi would, I mean, potentially seal the deal for anybody given his popularity. And it was presumed for months that Ganjar was his guy. But then to actually get onto the ballot, he needed the support of the party. And PDIP is the only party that meets the 20% threshold in parliament to individually nominate a candidate. 
So he had to, in a sense, kind of pay obeisance to Megawati Sukarnaputri, the former president who, herself, who's who's running the party, who has a, let's say, contentious relationship with Jokowi. I don't think she likes the fact that Jokowi, that she needs him and that he is more popular than she is, much less that her daughter, Puan Maharani, is still not getting on a presidential ticket. So can you explore a little bit for us why hasn't Jokowi endorsed Ganjar in, yet in the way that some people suspected? Why the flirtation with kind of supporting Prabowo at the same time? Right. I think there are a number of reasons. Number one, he doesn't want a too early confrontation with Megawati, right? By endorsing too openly. And but actually he's he's been open about it, but he knew very well that it's in the hands of political party, i.e., it's the authority of Ibu Mega as a party chairwoman to officially uh, nominate a presidential candidate. So what he can do with Ganjar is just uh, reminding people that uh, Ganjar looks uh, like a candidate uh, similar to him, would support his policies and so on and so forth, but never, you know, saying that uh, he would not. This is a very Javanese thing, right? A Javanese culture, because he knows that it, it is not in his authority to nominate. So he's been very careful. But with pa- Prabowo, it's, it's rather different because Prabowo himself is the party leader. Uh, he's the owner of uh, Grindra party. So if he endorses, doesn't matter for uh, Pablo need that, right? So that's uh, uh, reason number one, I think. Reason number two, I think Fajokowi tries to groom so many candidates. So in the hope that in the end, uh, it will be all his uh, preferred candidates on any tickets, right? either as the presidential candidate or as vice presidential candidates. Right? So he's been endorsing so many, uh, he's been courting so many uh, names and, and people kind of get a signal, right? Mm-hmm. That he wants this person to be the vice president or, or president and so on and so forth. So he's trying to, uh, to make uh, the image to the public that there are names that would, uh, it's like, Okay, you like me. My approval rating is so high. So if you like me, you should like these persons, right? This, this, these people that I endorse. So that's, I think, the kind of a message that he's trying to send to the the electorates in Indonesia. And uh, there are, you know, also a number of reasons for that. Because number one, he's been doing a great job in Indonesia in terms of development, infrastructures, and so on. And then quite successfully managing Indonesia's policy towards COVID-19 and then, you know, relatively successful economy out of the potential for crisis uh, during the COVID and post-COVID and so on. And then, of course, it's a matter of legacy, right? He want this to be continued because some of these programs, infrastructure in particular, have yet to be completed. And there are a lot of uh, things that need to be followed up. And uh, also about the new capital. It's huge, you know. If there is no COVID nineteen by this year, Pak Jokowi would have been uh, very, very successful because, you know, the plan was really to have this new capital ready by twenty twenty four. But given the COVID nineteen, it has to be postponed because you know you have to shift the budget, you know, towards uh, COVID recovery and so on and so forth. So, and it's been huge. The hype has been huge. 
and a lot of talk, a lot of uh, controversy. And now we get the law uh, bill passed on the new capital and so on. And this is a huge project to be continued. Otherwise, it would be uh, abandoned, right? And Pak Jokowi has been successfully managed to get the support of the Indonesian parliament. They passed the bill of the new capital. So whoever become the president, right, should continue because now it's the law. The problem would be, okay, uh, any president would continue, but then they might have different priorities, right? <laughs> so they might continue very, very slowly, uh, not at the pace that probably Pak Jokowi uh, wants it to be, or uh, completely abandon and change the law. So from that perspective, uh, Greg, I think he would uh, use uh, any modality at his disposal to really have some say in this. If he could, he wanted to shape the outcome of the election. But from the legacy perspective, that is something expected. So let's uh, let's talk about the last of the, the big three and the one who's got the most fractured coalition, and that would be Anis. So Anis, I guess a couple of questions here. One, what is Anis's theory of victory? He's running as the opposition candidate to a president or to the legacy of a president who has 75% approval. So, I mean, the two the two big guys running to claim Jokowi's mantle, they're competing for that. But presumably, if this goes to a runoff, either of them ends up consolidating most of the, the pro-Jokowi vote, right? So I, I just wonder if you could speculate a little bit on how Anis's people, if they really do, how do they imagine that he overcomes that clear popular preference for a continuation of Jokowi's legacy. Yeah, of course, if you pit Arnis against Jokowi, uh, it's uh, it's impossible to win. But I think uh, what he's been calculating, uh, this is my, my, my guess, right, that he would uh, face either Ganjar or Prabowo. So it's, it's somehow different. And then uh, probably he was thinking of, uh, because it's his voters i think overlap with prabowo's voters because prabowo has been running on that platform in the past elections right courting the islamic voters and so on so it's overlap what is new is that now uh, it seems to me with that high level of support for prabowo seems to me that prabowo maintain some degree of support from the islamic voters but also now he's getting the support from Jokowi's supporters. So it's adding up. So uh, that's why I think uh, the polls of, of Anis uh, slightly going down in the past few weeks because uh, uh, Prabowo supporters seems to be uh, adding up because he's playing uh, soft with Jokowi that is... Uh, He's a good guy in Pak Jokowi's team and so on. So he managed to get the support. And uh, please uh, remember as well, in 2014 and 2019, Pak Jokowi ran on the PDIP platform, but his supporters uh, went beyond PDIP supporters. So that's this non-PDIP voters of Pak Jokowi seems now throwing their support to now, maybe they dislike PDIP, I don't know. Uh, but uh, certainly the loyalists, so to speak, of President Jokowi, who's not voting for PDIP, seems now shift their 
support to the candidate that is supported by Pak Jokowi, i.e. Pak Prabowo, right? So that uh, somehow explains. So this is something that probably was not anticipated by the coalition that support Anis. So Philip says it happens. This is a very Javanese-centric top three, <laughs> which kind of says something about uh, Indonesian politics in general, which has been the gripe of many Indonesians. But I guess if you can kind of summarize the, the policy platforms of each of these three politicians, right? what would it mean for Indonesians as a whole? Yeah, I've been saying this, Alina, uh, that uh, for Indonesia, I think now the challenge that we are facing uh, is huge, right? Pandemic, geopolitics, and so on. Food security, and uh, also competition, the Indonesian competitiveness, and so on and so forth. So the change is so huge. And then as a result, I would expect that there would be uh, no big difference among these candidates when it comes to, you know, facing the real, you know, world problem. Campaign is one thing. Governing is <laughs> another thing, right? And uh, the, uh, there are constants. And uh, especially uh, when we're talking about foreign policy, security policy, in the context of Indonesia, sovereignty would be number one, territorial integrity, some level of uh, non-aligned, if you will, right? Because it's been the DNA. So uh, options are not many for whoever become the president. Maybe nuances uh, uh, would be you get some flavor of Prabowo at Shangri-La Dialogue, <laughs> regardless of uh, <laughs> what you think about that. But, you know, it's, it's very expected for the Indonesian audience, right? To be to show you as a, a, a honest broker, you know, and that line of uh, narrative, right? Uh, whether it is accepted uh, by the international community, but in the end, what matters is domestic audience. For most of the Indonesian presidents, when it comes to foreign policy and security, so that's the baseline of this president. But in terms of uh, maybe some nuances on specific issues. Prabowo and uh, Anis seems to me they are more exposed to international affairs, while Ganjar is uh, pretty much really like Pak Jokowi, right? Very domestically oriented and so on. So maybe that's why Prabowo has this bravery to put forward such a proposal at the Shangri-La Dialogue because he feels that he's exposed to the international affairs and uh, that he knows as well. And uh, probably Anis the same thing. He 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 would be uh, uh, Prabowo and Anis would be comfortable when it comes to you know foreign policy and international issues. Pak Ganjar, I think then you know more uh, similar to Pak Jokowi, domestically oriented, and do not want really to be seen as a, you know the frank assessment of of uh, President Jokowi. I think in terms of uh, international relations, I think uh, Indonesia continuously uh, punch below <laughs> its weight, right? Uh, there are a lot of things that can be done, but was not done in terms of international relations. You know more than me on this, uh, Elena, about uh, so-called Indonesia's, uh, what is it, perceived leadership in Southeast Asia and so on, yet there are not much can be done because the complexity of the situation that actually at the same time require leadership 
otherwise situation become much more complex uh, like what we have right now so i think prabo and uh, or anis would be more comfortable on this uh, issues or on international issues but not pak ganjar uh, domestically speaking same thing uh, options are not many we still need investments and then uh, that's why it's hard to imagine any indonesian president would be more protectionist than the currently now because uh, in the end they will i think uh, realize that uh, we are increasingly connected to the international global economy and we cannot escape from from uh, from geopolitics you know all right well for those who who don't remember or didn't hear it the first time you're welcome to go back and listen to the last episode to hear how uh Prabowo's peace plan for Ukraine the Shangri-La dialogue went over with the international community But for now, we're going to have to wrap this one up. Phillips, thank you so much for taking time to join us. Alina, thank you as as always. And thank you especially to the listeners. We'll see you, well, talk to you again about this issue before Valentine's Day 2024 when the candidates have at it, I'm sure. Uh, but for now, thank you. And we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Have a good day there. So, Jaffet, you can probably guess why I called you here today. Uh, to get audience feedback for upcoming potluck ideas? All jokes aside, yes, I think I know why. I was dreading this day, but alas, this is sadly my last episode with Southeast Asia Radio and my last week at CSIS. Karen, I think I can speak for our listeners and our team in saying, you'll be missed. I just wanted to say that it's been incredibly fun to contribute to this project and bring you all news from Southeast Asia on a regular basis, as well as help start Pacific Airwaves. I know the podcast is in your good hands moving forward, and I can't wait to rejoin the listener ranks. I have huge shoes to fill. I'll try to do the job justice. Thank you for everything, Karen. Best of luck to you for your next steps. Thanks, Jaffet. I know you'll do a great job. Why don't you take the outro this time? I'll have to get used to this, so I'll do my best. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at searadio at csis.org, and we'll be sure to answer any burning questions you may have. Do us a favor and subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends, family, neighbors, children, and pets about us. Our producers are Marla Hiller and David Lotvi, and our interns are Yumei Lin and Ramil Mercado. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Alina Noor. My name is Jaffet Kitson. And for the last time, I'm Karen Lee. And we'll see you in two weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio.